All right. We're in John 11. John 11 this morning, the chapter we've been going through for several weeks now that contains the amazing, the famous story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Here's a question for you guys this morning. What do you think people talked about after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? The answer might uh, surprise you. As you uh, recall, in John 11, Lazarus dies. Jesus waits a little bit, but then goes to visit the family, particularly Mary and Martha, his sisters. And there were others there from Jerusalem. It says in John eleven nineteen 19, that Jews from Jerusalem, about two miles off from where they were in Bethany, came up to the suburbs of Bethany where Mary and Martha lived, and they comforted them, and they mourned Lazarus with them because it's likely Lazarus, Mary, Martha were from a somewhat prominent Jewish family. And so a lot of people came up to pay their respect, folks from Jerusalem, the place where Jesus had most of his conflicts with the Pharisees. Jesus shows up at the funeral. He grieves with Mary and Martha and yet promises them that he is the resurrection and the life. So there's nothing but hope for Lazarus. He then proceeds to open the tomb of Lazarus. He has folks open it for him. Though he's been dead and decomposing for about four days, and he commands Lazarus to come forth, and Lazarus does. This is the most incredible miracle uh, of, of all time. I mean, this is kind of the grand finale of Jesus' miracles and signs that he does, particularly recorded in the book of John. I mean, this is like nothing anyone's ever seen, right? These Jewish people that were at the funeral, they would have seen a lot of men have to put grave clothes on, but none of them have ever had to take a man's grave clothes off. This is a first in life. Resurrection to life. It's the most incredible thing they've seen. And what's more, it was not a rumor. It was not like a story. This was not allegorical like a Hallmark Christmas movie, like the life was inside of us the whole time. Like, it's not that. It's not poetic, right? This is really happening. These Jewish people surrounding this tomb, they're seeing it in real time with real eyes. That dude was really dead, and now he's really alive because of this guy, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth um, with nothing to his name, except for 12 unemployed friends who can't get along. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, here's a question. We've asked it already. Let's ask it again. What do you think people talked about after that? After seeing that? They talked about power. Power. I'll tell you this, in case you didn't know. When someone raises a guy from death, the power dynamics in the community drastically change. Just FYI, just in case you're ever in an HOA meeting and this happens. 
people start to talk about power. I mean, just think of it in terms of our community of Poe Mill. Right now, there are developers who have bought the old mill site to turn it into luxury apartments. So they are going to take away, if you will, with the power of the dollar, the skate park. And they're going to build on it boutiques and housing for wealthy people, essentially. And they're going to be awesome apartments. I kind of want one. I've seen the plans. They're pretty sweet. <laughs> Super high ceilings, exposed brick. I mean, it's nice. Except for it's not nice for the skaters, right? And there's nothing they can do about it because the developers have the power. Now, let's just say, because I'm trying to make up an illustration that connects with us. Let's just say one of those skaters one day goes... And he's skateboarding with a friend, and his friend, inevitably, like they do all the time over there at the skate park, falls, hits his head, he dies right there at the skate park. And then one of the other skaters runs up, checks his pulse. Oh, no, he's dead, like dead, dead. Everybody's gathered around. Everybody's weeping. The skaters don't know what to do. And then one skater that checked his pulse, he's like, yeah, this is sad, right? Just like Jesus wept, he weeps. But then he says... Fellow skater, come forth. And that skater gets up and continues to ride around. Probably still not wearing a helmet. Those kids, for some reason, they don't want, they don't want the pads. They don't want the helmet. They want all the risk. And he's skating around. Now, here's the deal. If tell of this event gets to the developers taking over the skate park for their apartments at the old Poe Mill site, word gets to them, they're gonna know something in the neighborhood is dramatically different than they thought. Right? All of a sudden, they're not the ones who are really in charge. I mean, they got a lot of money and they can buy a lot of land, but they can't raise the skater kid from the debt. Right? No matter how much money they got, they can't do that. So it's likely then they can't do just anything they want in the neighborhood because there's this one kid with more power in him than their whole company. All of a sudden, our neighborhood would be ablaze with talk of power, who can do what, who will do what, and what that means for the future of this place. For some, it'd be this great and amazing thing that we have someone amongst us who can raise the dead, who's so connected to God, who's so close to God, he has the power of God over life and death, and some would rejoice, but there'd be some, perhaps maybe like a rich guy that wants to make more money off of luxury apartments, who might find this kid to be a little bit of a threat now that he's raised someone from the dead on that land. And he might rather want to get rid of that kid. And that is sort of, sort of, like what's happening at the end of John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The Jews all see it. This is near Jerusalem. And everyone starts talking about who's really in charge, who's really got the power, because with this latest miracle, it is obvious, it is clear, it is emphatic. The power dynamic has totally changed. So they start talking about power, and this text begs us to talk about power and for us to ask questions like, is there any power of my own that I'm unwilling to give up? 
to embrace the power of Jesus. Right? What power am I holding on to at all costs? What power am I unwilling to lie down in my kingdom in order to be raised again by Jesus to his kingdom? Is it my title? Is it my control? Is it my comfort? Is it my certainty? What power do I refuse to let go of? Ask Jesus to reveal it to you. Is there any power I'm holding on to in my little kingdom that I'm unwilling to give up. And as he reveals this to you, let his power dissolve your power struggle into peace in his sovereignty. Jesus has everyone talking about power. Let's dive in. Some talk about his power positively. Look at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things that Jesus did, right? They saw that skater rise from death right there in the middle of the Poe Mill skate park, right? They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from death after Lazarus was in his tomb for four days. They believed in him. I'd say that's a smart move, right? Good work to these Jewish folks of the first century. You see a guy raise another guy from death, you might as well just follow him. I mean... Pretty simple math. They believed in him. Now, I want to ask a question. What do you think it means that they believed in him? What kind of faith does a guy who raises the dead demand? Does it mean that they believed in him in this way in which they can now, you know, pass a test and answer some questions about him when asked? Does it mean that they're now tolerant of him being kind of part of their lives? Is that their belief I think the kind of belief that a resurrection demands is making Jesus your life, right? He raises Lazarus to life right in front of them. It's like, okay, then Jesus, you are my life. You have power over life, then I give you my life. I trust you with my life now and forever. I think that's the kind of belief we're talking about here. When I think of that kind of belief, I think of like the early church in the book of Acts, the early church, I mean, one thing about the belief of the early church is that they gave Jesus all the titles they used to give other people. That's how much they believed in him, right? So for the believers of the early church, it's no longer Caesar is Lord, it's Jesus is Lord. It's no longer these Pharisees are holy men, it's Jesus is the holy man. Now that's about to become a problem for Caesar, and it's about to become a problem for the Pharisees. <laughs> who love the power that titles bring. Titles, they can bring some power. I remember when I was in high school, when I was a skater kid, risking my life on my board. When I was in high school, one of the things I did was I signed up to be the soccer team manager. Now, really what I was was a soccer team water boy. Okay? That's really what it was. But I was not ashamed to sign up for it because A, I didn't play soccer, I was a skater. But B, uh, it wasn't embarrassing to be called the manager. And C, that title manager came with some power. Specifically on away game days, I could miss the last period to fill up the water and find the coach's clipboard. I was like, this is an awesome title, what power? Like, aren't you supposed to be in math? No, I'm the soccer team manager. 
I love that title. Love that power. And the Pharisees, they are like kids in this moment because they love their titles. I mean, it makes them feel special. But if Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, if he is the king of life and death, your title is now pretty insignificant by comparison. Like, oh, you're in charge of Jerusalem. Sweet. I'm in charge of the universe. Like, oh, I think you got me beat. That doesn't feel as good as being soccer team manager. The truth is the only title that really matters is Jesus' title, not your title or my title, whether it's bishop or cardinal or pope or Pharisee. And the question I think we need to ask is, are we willing to give all our titles to Jesus? Or do we have to have our titles? We have to have that power. We've got to feel this way. But something better than titles is here. Being raised from the dead. That's way better than all of our titles. So we need to hold our titles loosely. Give Jesus and assign to Jesus all titles. Trade in your power struggle for peace and his sovereignty. Some begin to talk about his power positively. Some begin to talk about his power negatively. Look at verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Right, so classic tattletale scenario. This is like when those girls at my Christian high school would tell him, he's not really filling up the water, right? He's stealing snacks from the lunchroom and wasting time. Don't let him get out of last period. That's what these Pharisees are like. Still bitter about that, still in counseling over some of this. But here's the idea. Some of the Pharisees, those in power, were there, and the Jews said, hey, you guys should check this guy out, because here's the deal, he raised a guy from the dead, like for real, we saw it with our own eyes, he's got power, and that's not good for you, Mr. Pharisee, because not only are you going to have to give up your title, you're going to have to give up control. Here's what the Pharisees loved almost more than their titles, control. They loved control over people. The Pharisees in the scriptures represent two powers that always rage against the power of Jesus. The Pharisees, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read a lot about them. They represent government and religion because they were kind of both powers in one guy. They were delegates of Rome for local government. And they were also priests that ruled over the temple and the local religion there in Jerusalem. So together, they're government and religion. And together, government and religion kind of make up power in an earthly sense. Now, in an eternal sense, Jesus has all power, makes up all power. Eternally, he will triumph over both government and religion as our prophet, priest, and king. And this means that government and religion really have no power compared to Jesus' power. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but they do not like that. Let's hit religion first. These Pharisees are the religious people. They're talking about Jesus' power negatively because it means they gotta give up religious control. Verse 47, 48. Verse 47, the chief priests, right? These are the religious people, the Pharisees. They gathered and counseled together. This is what religious people do. They committee, 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 right? We got to counsel because we're religious people. What shall we do for this man works many signs, miracles? You think religious people would be a fan of miracles. They're not. They're a fan of control. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Let's stop right there just for a second. 
They're saying if everybody sees that this guy can raise the dead, they'll believe in him, not us. They'll believe in truth, not our tradition. See, religion, not gospel. What we are, we're gospel people. We free you, right? You're free. Follow the Spirit, read the Bible, come in community and help us out. We'll try to help you out. Gospel, good news. We're not religious people. Well, we're trying not to be. And if you see it in us, we'll repent. Tell us and let us know. But religion is all about control. It's a totally different thing. Religion is about the power of control. It's like why religion exists. Unless it's pure and undefiled, which is to take care of orphans and widows, according to James 1. Unless it's that, religion is about controlling people. Religion's always about controlling people. It's about setting up a hierarchy, a top-down structure, using fear to get people to behave the way we want them to. And one of the greatest power plays religion has is pretending that they have special insight into who gets life after death and who does not. Like they get this, they, they have this power play of letting you know you either are in or you are out. That's a pretty good bit of control. Especially when you say it's all based on the behaviors we've chosen and the works we've decided on. If you do those, you're in. If you don't, you're out. But then it all crashes down when a guy named Jesus comes along and gives away life after death for free to everyone who will believe. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He gives life after death without their system, without their ceremony, without their permission, without their hierarchy. He didn't even ask a guy with the hat. The hat guy is the one that decides. This carpenter usurps his authority. And he totally sidesteps their power and he demonstrates that he knows who has life after death because he's the one who gives it by grace, not them, by works. And if he does this with Lazarus, he can do it again and again and again until everyone's following him and believing in him. And this means the Pharisees will have no more control. Thus, they got to get rid of the skater kid so they can continue to build their kingdom, right? They have to forbid Jesus from doing more miracles. They got to forbid people from following Jesus and getting out of line with the local religion. Verse 48, did you catch this? Verse 48, if we let him alone... Right? If we just leave him alone, everyone's going to believe in him. Right? If we don't take control, we lose control of the people. This is a dark place our heart can get to when we want to control others. They'll follow him, not obey us. And this is the core fear of religion. This is the core fear of religious people. Gospel people, we free you to follow the Spirit. We free you to follow Jesus on your own and with us as a community to help keep each other accountable for sure. Religious people, their big fear is that you're going to do something without consulting them, right? That's their, they're, they're afraid, like their core fear when it comes to gospel is, well, if Jesus will just forgive them, then they're just going to go do whatever they want. Have you ever heard religious people say this? It's their big fear because they don't have the understanding that once you meet Jesus, what you want is to be with Jesus, <laughs> amen? Once you meet Jesus, what you want is to worship and follow and trust and know Jesus, so yeah, go do whatever you want, because <laughs> what you're going to want is him. They can't even fathom that. Their core fear is not having a structure and a rule for everything. And so what religious people have to do, they have to forbid everything. They have to forbid almost everything to keep people under control. They even have to forbid certain people from getting too popular 
in the religion. Just like they're about to forbid Jesus and his disciples from getting too popular, even though these guys are Jews and Jewish. They're kind of in the religion, but now they're forbidden. Using their power for control. Here's my question for you. What is it that you absolutely must forbid, even though it's not technically in the Bible? Let me ask you this. Let's get deeper. Who is it that you absolutely must forbid from the church, from the kingdom, even though God gives grace to whom he will? Where do you cherish your hierarchy, your power of control over Jesus' power of control? You see, here's the thing. When you come to Jesus, he has the power to give you life, but that same power gives everybody else who believes life. So here's what I need you to know. If you let your power struggle be dissolved into peace in his sovereignty, whoever you say, whatever you do, Jesus, I'm on board. It means you will have to give up forbidding people to come to God, and you will have to forgive others as they come to God. Are you willing? Last night, um, last night I preached a service. Uh, it was a memorial service for a group of women who had aborted their babies and have since met Jesus, repented of sin, been filled with the Spirit, and are living a new life. It was at the Piedmont Women's Center, which is a Christian pro-life organization that one of our members works at. And so they asked me to do this little chapel service where the women, for the first time, gave their aborted children names and gave speeches about what they wish would have happened if they hadn't been blinded and what they wish could have been for their children. And they mourned the loss of their children, but part of the goal of this memorial service was also to confirm that these women have been forgiven. Because abortion's a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. And anyone who repents and believes is 100% totally, completely, forever forgiven. Amen? We believe in this. We're gospel people. And so here's what I'm saying to you. When you let down your power, when you dissolve this power, I'm preaching to these women, and here's what I wanted to tell them, right? Jesus forgives you. Your children forgive you because any, they're with Jesus, and so they're connected to ultimate forgiveness. They have it all straightened out because they're in the presence of God, right? You're righteous in God's sight because of the blood, death, resurrection of Jesus. So here's what this means for you, okay? You might be an awesome mom, who had your child, and you're protecting your child, and you're raising your child. But if you really let down your religious power, you'll see that these moms that I preached to last night stand just as righteous in God's sight as you do. Just like you will worship Jesus in heaven with your child, they will one day worship Jesus in heaven with their child. Amen? You see, this is, this is the truth. When we let our power struggle dissolve into grace, everybody's in who wants grace. No hierarchy. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Can you stand this? Are you willing to receive this? Are you willing to give up the power struggle and be at peace in his sovereignty? I told those women, you're all welcome here at Griggs. Is that cool with you? 
They're all welcome here at Griggs. And they're not welcome just because they did a memorial service. They're welcome because they repented of sin and put their trust in Jesus. These women had gone through a six-week study on the grace of God and repenting of sin and turning a new, uh, into something new because of the Holy Spirit. They had gone through a six-week study, but they're not righteous. And they're not worthy because they went through a six-week study. They're worthy because of just Jesus. You see, when we give up our power, the power struggle, and we have peace in his sovereignty, we don't get to count people out. We then are in community with people. Even the people we wish or used to wish in our flesh that we could forbid. Religious people, we have to give up control and let him control the kingdom. Just as Jesus forgives others lavishly, we must forgive others lavishly. Those who celebrate Jesus' power, those who are enchanted by Jesus' power, those who love his power, they know the only title that matters is Jesus' title. And they give up control over who's in and who's out. Like Lazarus, they live a brand new life, forgiving others lavishly. They got peace in his sovereignty. Now, some here do not. They are talk, some are talking about his power positively. Some are talking about his power negatively because they don't want to give up control. And they also don't want to give up their comfort. Look at verse 48 again. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And it continues and says, the Romans will come and take away both our place, our position of power, and our nation. Here's what we see here. The Pharisees, not only religious authorities, they are governmental authorities. So the Romans allowed these guys called the Pharisees to be local government. Rome took over on a hierarchy sense, on an org chart, Rome's at the top. But they allow these Pharisees to be kind of like the council for the town and to rule by Jewish law. And what are the Pharisees now worried about here at the end of verse 48? Not just losing religious control, but losing their own comfort. Right? If you study government throughout history, different geographies, you'll find most people, when they get into government, whether that's being a king or being a prime minister or whatever, they tend to be corrupted by that power and use that power, at least in some sense, to bolster their own comfort. Right? I feel like we see that sometimes here in the States because it feels like everyone who's elected has one goal, and that is to get reelected, right? Because it's sweet at the top. At least that's how it seems. It's comfortable there, especially in countries with nothing and with poverty, right? The one guy who does have it all is the guy in charge, is the governmental authority. And so they're thinking, if everyone believes in Jesus, there's not going to be any more need for local government. Rome's just going to take over all the way. And we won't be part of the plan. And our position in our nation is going to greatly change. And that may mean that we're going to suffer. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Caiaphas, not the most encouraging guy, right? Not real nice, not super chipper. Caiaphas, you don't invite him to the birthday party, right? He's just not real fun. 
you guys don't know anything. He says, you think you know what's going on. You think you know how bad this is? You don't know half of how bad this is, that Jesus has raised the dead. You don't realize how tough we got to go on Jesus. We're going to lose it all. You think we're going to lose something? We're going to lose everything if Jesus becomes king. We're going to lose all our comfort. Here's what we've got to do. I've already thought about this, and here's what I came up with. Verse 50, he says, It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So get this scene again. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A bunch of people saw it. They went and told the leaders who are now counseled together. It's probably about 70 men called the Sanhedrin. That's probably who we're talking about. Think of them as a Congress for Jerusalem, a parliament, if you will, for the government of Jerusalem. They're all standing up and taking terms about how worrisome this Jesus guy is. He's got more power in him than we all have in us. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, he's got his long beard, he's got his robes, he's got the hat, he's the guy with the hat. He stands up and he says, I'm one step ahead of all of you. We got to kill Jesus so that we and our followers don't suffer the loss of power and perks. Now, verse 48 and 50 are really interesting because Caiaphas is evil and sinister and, and grumpy as this guy is. He's actually got a lot of things right theologically. It's fascinating, right? One thing he's right on is that Jesus changes everything. He is totally correct on that. These guys are right. If everyone starts believing in Jesus, the laws are going to change. The nations are going to change. The, the position uh, that you're in will change. Lives will change. Amen and amen. Right? This is true. Jesus changes everything. You need to know this. Jesus did not come to be an accessory to your life. Jesus is not looking to be an addition to your life. He's not looking to be a modifier on your life. Jesus changes all of life. Jesus changes everything. Caiaphas, you nailed that one. Second thing that he's right on is that if Jesus changes everything, that means we're all going to suffer. Amen. Jesus changes your friend group. Jesus changes your finances. Jesus changes your free time. Jesus changes everything. And that means there's going to be some loss of comfort. And you'll suffer. Now, none of us want to suffer. But government, they definitely don't want to suffer because they always have more to lose. So many times they'll do anything to keep power, even if that means outlawing Jesus, which many governments do to this day. The first guy to do this was Herod. When Jesus was born, he killed so many young children trying to kill Jesus and control Jesus because that's what government's trying to do. They're trying to control where the king should be in control. That's kind of how it all started. When you go to Israel asking for a king and God gave it to him, though it wasn't his perfect will for them. The next guy who tries to do this right here while Jesus is 33 is Caiaphas. He's trying to kill Jesus to get rid of, to control, have control over Jesus. And some of us are trying to do this. We're trying to outlaw Jesus in our own kingdoms so that we could stay comfortable. But here's what's really interesting about this is that we're missing out. 
Jesus changes everything. That does mean we will suffer. But what did Jesus do to make Caiaphas and these Pharisees realize all of this? What did Jesus do that got everybody talking about power in the first place? He raised Lazarus from the dead. So, this one who changes everything. Yeah, that might cause some discomfort. We might suffer. Rome might take over. We might lose some things. And let's just say worse comes to worse and we die. Is that unacceptable? No, it's quite acceptable. Because that same guy with all that power uses his power to raise the dead. Don't hold on to your comfort with such a tight grip. You are missing out. Let your power struggle for comfort dissolve into peace in his sovereignty. Because the guy who has all the power, Jesus, the guy who has all the power loves us. He is good and kind. He likes you more than you like you. I've seen you. You're hard on yourself. Jesus isn't half as hard on you as you are on you. Your inner critic is nothing compared, right? It's, it's way more critical than Jesus is. He loves you like a child and like a sheep. He loves you like a friend. He loves you with an everlasting love so much that this man gave up his life for his friends. He has come to give his life out of death and to turn funerals into parties. And he has come to comfort those who have lost all comfort. So we can hold on to our power in an attempt to eliminate suffering. And guess what? We still suffer. Did you notice this? Caiaphas does end up finding a way to get Jesus put to death. He holds on to his power a little longer. But just FYI, Caiaphas eventually died. A little history lesson for you. Statistics are in. 100% of us die. I'd say 90% of statistics are made up on the spot. Get it? But 100% of people die. That's true and not made up. Not only does Caiaphas die, but eventually in AD 70, Rome does take over Jerusalem all the way. They destroy the place. So holding on to our comfort actually never ends up comfortable at all. So we can hold on to our comfort, our power, and attempt to eliminate suffering, or we can give up our power to comfort ourselves, and we could opt for Jesus' power and willingly follow him into suffering. This may mean we give up some of our stuff. We give everything away, knowing that if it's his will, we have it. He can easily bring it all back. We might give lavishly. We might serve with our free time very lavishly, knowing that if it's his will, we have more free time. He can open up dates on calendars, right? He's got all the power to raise the dead. So we can suffer as an act of worship in hope. We can suffer well. We can suffer in faith that Jesus, like Lazarus, and his story, will bring a glory in us that will be revealed and it won't, even, it won't be anything compared to the suffering we went through for Jesus. He's raising the dead. Jesus will raise you from the dead. You can trust him.
with your comfort. I'll say this. We might as well, right? We might as well let our power dissolve into peace in his power. Because here's the sneaky yet not so sneaky truth in the text. Because Jesus has all power, in fact, you actually have no power at all. Nor does the government. Not our government, not Russia, Gaza, Israel, North Korea, Canada, Mexico, just list them, China. They, not a, they all have an illusion of power. They have a certain stewardship of power delegated to them by God that they can use while they're alive. But ultimately, like in the ultimate picture, God's got the power. Jesus Christ has the power, and they have none. <laughs> Zero. Check this out. Verse 49 and 50. It says it right here in the Bible. Caiaphas has no power, just the illusion of power. That's what we got to. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest, said, you guys don't know anything. You don't consider the truth, and that is that it's expedient to kill Jesus. One man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas is like, I got a plan. One man's going to die instead of all of us lose our jobs. In my power, I will take Jesus over to the Romans so the Romans don't take over us. That's what I'm going to do. It's my authority to do it. Now, is it really Caiaphas's governmental authority and power? Is that really all under his religious power? Look at verse 51 through 53. Some say the Bible is boring. They haven't read these couple verses. Now, this he did not to say on his own authority. This he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, not just for Israel, but also that he would gather together. I mean, this is so beautiful. Gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, the Gentiles. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Is this not fascinating? Like, this is jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring. This is unbelievable, incredible. What a beautiful picture of the sovereign power of God. Caiaphas has no power, just the illusion of power. He says, I have the authority to kill Jesus. And in verse 51, it says, he didn't know this, but he wasn't even saying that on his own authority. God's the one who put all this into his heart. Because the plan of God was to save the world through Jesus' death. To save Israel and all people who will believe from all nations through Jesus' death. So he's the high priest that year, Caiaphas. And though he's an evil high priest, God used his position to give him a word from God, a prophecy. And that word was that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel. All the other families of the earth would be blessed, like in the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus was going to die. That was the prophecy. I mean, Jesus has got everyone talking about power. God the Father chimes in. He's talking about power. So some are speaking of Jesus' power positively, some negatively. God here speaks of Jesus' power definitely. That Jesus' power over death would dominate the whole world no matter what Caiaphas did. And it's so mind-blowing that he even did it through telling Caiaphas this in advance, through a prophecy. And Caiaphas still played right into God's hand. Caiaphas is so conceited, 
so obsessed with his own power that he twists this prophecy of the gospel and uses it as an excuse to exercise his own power over Jesus' death. And Caiaphas, twistedly, is doing this so that he, in theory, could be saved from Jesus. And yet, over all of Caiaphas's activity, the father is using him like a pawn, like a puppet with strings, to get Caiaphas to put Jesus to death so that everyone who believes can be saved by Jesus. Caiaphas thinks he's coming up with this plan in the moment, but this has actually been planned before the foundations of the world. Caiaphas thinks, I just got an idea, but Jesus' death was God's idea ever since Genesis 3 when those animal skins were used to cover Adam and Eve. How it all works is above our pay grade. But here's what you need to acknowledge. Our plans, which are made by our will, are always somehow superseded by God's plans. And his plan was for Jesus to die. His plan was to pierce the sun so that by his stripes, many would be healed. What Caiaphas was actually prophesying was not, um, here's how I'm going to keep our power, boys. He was actually, in that same moment, prophesying what theologians call the penal substitutionary atonement. That one man would die for the nation. Penal means penalty, substitutionary, in our place. Atonement means to be made one with God. God in his power was using Caiaphas to get Jesus to the cross where he could take the penalty of our sin in our place so that we could be made one with God. Jesus was dying for the nation, and he was dying for Rome, and he was dying for the government and for the religions of the world, for your sin and mine, for our lust, for our sexual sins, sexual relations outside of marriage, for our hatred, for our stealing, for our cheating, and our blaspheming, and our lying, and our pride, and our religion, in our obsession with titles and our idols of comfort and our idols of control and certainty. Jesus wasn't being forced towards the cross by Caiaphas. He was willingly laying down his life through Caiaphas so that all of us can be Lazarus and rise again from death and be changed forever. Jesus changes everything. So Caiaphas is trying to exert power to get rid of Jesus, and it is superseded by God's power, and Caiaphas ends up making Jesus the most famous person to ever live, so that now everyone, tribes, tongues, nations, kindreds, families of the whole earth, believe in him just like he was afraid of. Do you guys get what I'm saying? This is fascinating. It's unfathomable. We must bow to the power of God, bend to the power of God, believe in the power of God. Let your power struggle dissolve into the grace of God and be at peace in his sovereignty, even if that means accepting giving up some things and suffering and losing some comfort. 
He's inviting you to peace. Some spoke of his power negatively. Some spoke of his power positively. And we end with some speaking of his power curiously. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer openly walked amongst the Jews. He didn't feel really invited uh, after this whole council. He went there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and he remained with his disciples. So the next step in Jesus' story is going to be cross and resurrection, which you'll see in the next several chapters of John as he spends time teaching his disciples, and by extension, us, various things. Verse 55, and the Passover of the Jews was near. The Passover is what happens right after Lazarus. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem. All the Jews from the region came into Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke amongst themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? What do you think? Will he come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, should report it, that they might seize him. So you talk about a power struggle. This is the struggle for the power of clarity, of certainty. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's time for the feast. Everybody's coming in. They've got to purify themselves. There's these washing pots and places in the temple to purify yourself physically, spiritually, before you partake of the feast, of the Passover. And as everyone's standing in line to wash their hands and be purified and be okayed by the priest for worship, they're all in line whispering to each other about Jesus. Did you see him? Have you seen his disciples? Did you hear that they said, if anyone knows about his whereabouts, to report it, right? He's on Jerusalem's most wanted list. Uh, He uh, is is an actively wanted fugitive of the law. Some are saying, I think he's going to lay low this year. He'll come back to the Passover next year. Some perhaps are like, no, he's going to show up. He's going to take over. And they're all in line. They're all whispering back and forth on what is going to happen. They want that certainty. And when it comes to Jesus, a lot of our talk around him is wanting, we want to talk about Certainty. What's he up to? Where's he coming? Where's he going to do? How's he going to do it? Rather than talking about, he raised Lazarus from the dead. We have good news. Perhaps in our day, people search to find certainty around the time of Jesus' second coming, the date that Jesus will return over the good news. Like, what's better than knowing when Jesus is coming back is knowing why Jesus is coming back. And that is to make all things new. And that is to restore all things, break a new heaven and a new earth and gather his people that they might live in perfection with him forever. That's a much better thing to talk about than arguing over some certainty we can never have. In this day, with these folks, in the end of this chapter 11, they're curious about how Jesus is going to use his power. Is he going to show up? Is he going to take over? Is he going to fight the Pharisees? Is it going to be a fist fight or a battle of ideas? And what's better than knowing whether or not if he's about to show up that day at that Passover, which he is, but what's better than knowing if he's going to show up? What's better is the good news, knowing why he's about to show up to that Passover. And that is that he is not showing up to take over the Passover and slay all of his enemies, 
but to come to be the lamb of that Passover and make friends with all his enemies through shedding his blood. When it comes to Jesus, we often want to use all our power to get certainty out of him. So we talk to others till we try to find certainty. Do you think God wants me to move? Do you think God wants me to take this job? Do you think God will provide? We, we, power, we pray for the power of certainty. God, tell me what to do. How are you going to fix all this? How are you going to provide? Give me a sign. Some of that's okay, but some of it is like you want certainty more than the good news. right? You feel like Jesus hasn't spoken because he answered not answered a certain question, so you feel all doubtful. But he has answered some questions. You feel like he hasn't spoken. He has spoken. And what he has spoken is the gospel, the good news, that he raises the dead, that he died. And the Father has given us grace that Jesus rose again, so we will rise again. And so for some of you, the way you want to hold on to power is through seeking clarity and certainty all the time rather than relinquishing your power to Jesus who raises Lazarus from death. You're not always going to be certain. Facts, figures, dates, what's next, what season is coming. But here's the good news is you can be certain that Jesus is always with you. And the gospel is always true. You can let your struggle for certainty dissolve into the peace of his sovereignty, knowing that whatever's coming, the one in charge of it is also in charge of the grave. So we're going to be all right. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's got us all talking about power. Now we're the ones talking about power. And here's the options we've been given at the end of the day. I'll show you a slide. Here's the options for you. You could have the worldly power, like government and religion, earthly power, or heavenly power, eternal power, the power of the cross and the resurrection. Obsessed with titles, or the only title that matters is Jesus' title. Forbidding everyone from getting out of line, or forgiving lavishly across all lines, unwilling to accept suffering, willing to suffer as an act of worship, mind consumed with certainty. I gotta find certainty, or you're at peace with uncertainty because you know someone who is in fact certain, and his name is Jesus. And as I was looking at this list, I just got to ask myself, are we promoting list two, the cross and the resurrection, in our church? Is this what we're calling people to? Because I'll tell you this, it is easy in any organization, even the gospel church, to slip into looking a lot like government and religion. It's easy. Even for us here at Griggs, it can be easy. It's a human thing. You know, right now, I, I follow and am in some of the church planting world. Right now, it's really cool for churches that are planting here in Greenville, to give themselves like a set of three things. And they all have, it's all kind of the same, but it's all kind of different. They're kind of funny. I, I get it, right? But it's like discover, develop, deploy. It's like discover the gospel, develop relationships, deploy out into the world. It's like, that's cool. That's good. Right? Uh, you know, come, connect, flourish. It's like, it's a great idea. I love that. Three great things right there. Um, you know, welcome, 
everyone and find groups and uh, launch, launch into the neighborhood, launch. It sounds like a rocket. Very cool. I was actually influenced by this. It's very popular right now in church planting world. I was influenced by this. I felt like I had to have three things for our church. So what I chose, as you can see on the signs and on the van, Jesus gospel neighborhood. It was the best three I could come up with, right? And it's actually what I want to do. It's what I want us to do. But that, I mean, I was like, got to have three things. I just felt that way. No one really told me that. I didn't get like a letter. Like, yeah, what's your three, bro? But I just kept saying three things. So I was like, well, what are we about? And so I said, Jesus, gospel, neighborhood. That's how I came up with that. So you know how the sausage is made. But then I was thinking, what would the early church's slogan be? Like this guy who writes the letter, or the book, rather, of John. Guys who saw Lazarus rise from death. Like, what would their three, what would their slogan be? And I started laughing about how badly their church plants would go in Greenville. (laughs) Because it would be something like what we have on the slide. Like, welcome to first century Baptist church. We're a new church plant where we teach you to give up all your titles, forgive lavishly, suffer well, give everything away, and tolerate the unknown. I don't know how many people, even sitting in pews across Greenville this morning, are signing up for that, right? They'd be like, y'all take retreats to Pigeon Forge? You got a good kid's ministry? My kid came home without a cake. His birthday was two weeks ago, no cake. I didn't feel very welcomed. I only got one donut and the glazed were gone. What church is this? I don't know how many of us would sign up for the book of Acts. And I got to ask myself that question. But then I started to think how free those people were, man. Those dudes were free. Free from the constant power struggles we're all entangled in all the time. Free. Jesus has everyone talking about power. Some positively, some negatively, some curiously. And I want to encourage us, let's talk about his power exclusively and constantly and elaborately. What do you say we try this to? Like, what if we made this our core values for the church? (laughs) Come here, we'll teach you how to suffer well. Come here, we'll teach you how to give it all away. What do you say we give up all our power? For Jesus' power. It's like we're playing tug of war and it's time to let down the rope. And what's weird is when you're a kid and you let down the rope, the other team falls over and you kind of win by not winning. I've been the guy falling over a lot. But when you let go of the rope with God, He just gives you grace and He just gives you peace and He just comes to the rescue and He just shows you love. And so you never lose by letting go of the rope with God. And some of you today, I don't know where it is in your life, but you need to let go of the rope. And you need to let that power struggle inside of you just dissolve into peace. Because Jesus, whether we like it or not, he's got all the power. And I think you'll like it because he raises the dead. Amen? I want you to think about these things as we pray and take communion. Nate Labradorf is going to come up and lead our time. Jesus... As uh, we transition now into a sacrament, I just pray that we'd examine 
where we're struggling for power. I pray that we'd let go of the, war, the, the rope. I pray that we'd uh, step off the battlefield and just embrace you and your sovereignty. Lord, help us to be like the cross and the resurrection, to live in the power of the cross and the resurrection. Not any type of earthly authority or power at all. In Jesus' name, amen.